You are listening to Chthonia, the podcast of the Dark Feminine. Chthonia's logo was designed by J.R. Malpair. Background music is Phantasm by Kevin McLeod. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Chthonia, the last one for the year 2019. I'm your host, Breege Burke, and uh, in the the sort of tradition that we have here, we're actually in the midst of what they would call the, when this, certainly when this podcast is going to be released, it's going to be in the midst of what we call the 12 days of Christmas, uh, that time between December 25, you kind of maybe starting with the, the Yule season um, on, you know, around December 21st, 22nd, depending on where you are, and uh, ending, of course, with the uh, Epiphany on January 6th, um, which tends to have more relevance to you know, there, there are certainly celebrations within the Catholic Church uh, of the Epiphany, but there's also, um, it tends to be have a little bit more meaning for the Orthodox, uh, Orthodox Christians who tend to celebrate their Christmas uh, around January 6th, around, you know, around that time. So <clears throat> the subject I thought would be a good one for today and to end the year, let me just move my microphone a little closer here, Um is I want to talk a little bit about some of the uh, European Christmas traditions of the dark feminine, particularly uh, Frau Perkta, and, um, who is a, a Germanic figure. I'm not going to say just Germany, because Germanic encompasses uh, quite a few European countries, and also uh, <clears throat> you know parts of Eastern Europe as well, but also the Icelandic figure of Grilla, who is very, uh, they're very similar. They're not, I'm not going to say that they're identical, but they are very similar in terms of their role and what they do and um, how their role has changed over time. Now, I think the probably the best way for me to start this discussion is to explain who each of these figures are, what the folklore is behind them, um, as, you know, as I can, best that I can. Um, I'm going to try to avoid uh, too many... <laughs> Icelandic names, mainly because um, I'm reading them and I'm going, yeah, that that I'm going to destroy right out. Even if I uh, even if I take some time to go to one of his translation pages and, and listen to how it's said, somehow it will still come out wrong. So I just thought, no, you know what? We'll just we'll just I'll just try to do as much as I can without uh, too many too many names that uh, I'm I'm not going to destroy. Um, so we want to. I'm going to talk about both of them, and I also kind of want to talk about why. Why are these particular figures? What are, what are their connections to Saint Nicholas? What are their connections to Santa Claus and to Krampus and to some of these other um, things? And and what's the importance of their associations? Um, because as as you might expect, the associations that these particular figures have in folklore. Um, and their role actually connects to something that uh, is probably connected to some traditions that are much older uh, dealing with this particular time of year. Now, let, I, so let me, let me just actually, probably a good way to preface all this is to talk a little bit about what we're talking about by this time of year. Um, winter holidays, there are so many winter holidays now. Um, there are some more modern ones like Kwanzaa, for example. Um, there's the Festival of Hanukkah, which has to do with... Um, celebrating of um, the oil miraculously lasting during the Maccabean revolt when um, the um, the Macedonian king or the Greek king tried to um, you know basically desecrated the the Jewish temple and let um, and, and and wanted to have statues of Zeus installed and so then they desecrated the holy of holies and, and so but so this was the one you know, this was the one uh, sort of um, one untouched vial that was not 
you know, um, not not destroyed or not didn't lose its perfect purity. That was able to to last a certain number of days. Um, once once the Mac, you know, once once the um, the other uh, soldiers, the Greeks, were driven out. And um, <clears throat> this was something that the Jews had done with the help, so the help of the Romans at that time. So anyway, I don't want to get too much into the history of Hanukkah, but it is another holiday that's associated that, with, that, uh, with this time. Yule is a holiday that we tend to think of as having to do with, you know, the fact that it's the darkest day of the year and the light begins to return um, after these, these solstice days. The, the, you know, the, the, we're, we're in the deepest darkness and things will start to gradually get lighter every day, which is probably why you have an association with this day and Christmas. Um, Christmas is a, uh, is, the, is the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, historically, if, if Jesus is a historical person, um, Jesus is probably actually born in the spring. But the connection here is this idea of a um, sort of a divine son, S-O-N, connected to the divine son, S-U-N, um, which, which may be, um, I know I had a discussion with some people about this, that may be the connection between uh, Sol Invictus and, and some of these other figures end up ending up being kind of either conflated with or somehow creating a context for Christianity with the idea of Christ as sort of this um, son of God who is a savior figure. Um, and that kind of association with the sun, S-U-N, whether originally intended uh, or not, uh, that, you know, these, these sun gods, these celestial gods tend to become associated with, um, with the quote-unquote son of God. So, um, and of course, all of the legends surrounding the birth of Jesus, um, certainly, you know, there's the whole story of Mary and Joseph, and, you know, of course, Mary becomes pregnant, she's a virgin, um, an angel comes to her and tells her that, you know, God has given her a child, and then, uh, you know, so, and Joseph goes along with this and, you know, they get married and then they're, um, they're, they're, they're going to, um, you know, they're, they're kind of fleeing their country and they're, they're looking for a place to stay, uh, so that she can deliver her baby, but the inn they go to is full. So they get put out into a, a manger, you know, which is like a, a stable where the, the horses and the sheep and, you know, are, and she gives birth there to uh, the child Jesus, who is supposed to be the Christ child, and all of the um, things that go along with that. Um, you know, the, there's the, the three magi. And magi, of course, in this case, are not magicians per se. They are Zoroastrians, probably. That's, that's the term that was used for them, for Zoroastrian priests. But they, um, they did a whole lot. They, you know, they, they were some of the early users of astrology and astronomy and, and so forth. And so the idea was that there was these three, ma three wise, they called them three wise men, but they're the three, these three Zoroastrian priests who apparently see this prediction. I think it's, it was a kind of a Jupiter-Saturn conjunction, if I remember correctly. I'm not swearing that I have that exactly right. Um, but at that point, um, they, they decide to make a, a trip and then they find, um, but they're going to, of course, they start asking too many questions about trying to find a king, which is why then, um, they become in danger and they have to flee to Egypt, um, after the baby's born, but they, they supposedly come and they bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh to this child who's, you know, in a stable. Okay. That's, that's the, that's the legend. That's the folklore. Um, the historical reality of that is not something we get into, whether that's real or not. Um, but that, that was the story that has grown up around that. And the day that the wise men come, or the, the, these Zoroastrians, is known as the Feast of the Epiphany. Now, in the Orthodox Church, Epiphany is more of a celebration of the baptism of Jesus, okay, which actually would happen much later on, certainly not 12 days after he was born. Um, but what, you know, when he goes to the River Jordan and is baptized by John the Baptist, 
Um, you know, that, that's the epiphany. That's supposed to be the moment of manifestation, the moment when um, there's a moment of clarity there where, where the, you know, the, the, the truth behind the, the evident, you know, the reality of who this, this person is uh, suddenly shows itself and becomes evident. It's like there's a vision and, and you know now with clarity that this is, you know, who, who Jesus is through this. Okay, so all that's kind of background because it occurs to me that there's still a lot of people who don't really understand what Christmas is about or about what that, you know, that particular, um, that story in that episode. I, I don't want to take for granted that people know that backdrop. It's important for this, so I, I apologize for a lot of prefacing here, but it is important to understand these other stories and their context, at least, um, you know, in the more 19th century and later context. All right. So, <clears throat> Frau uh, Perkta, uh, both her and Grilla are associated with these 12 days of Christmas. And Perkta, in, in, who also translates, her name usually translates to Berkta or Bertha, um, and who has other counterparts uh, like um, uh, Befana in Italy, uh, they're, they're both connected with the 12 days of Christmas, um, and, they're, and, they, and they serve a kind of, a, a rather interesting uh, kind of role. Let me just... Um, read a little bit about Perkta first. Okay. Um, so this is from an article by John B. Smith called Perkta the Belly Slitter. And he says, who is or who was the Frau Perkta of Southern German and Austrian folklore? In short answer might be like our own Father Christmas or the Italian Befana. She is a mysterious figure said to be at large at one time or another during the 12 days of Christmas, receiving offerings, rewarding those who conform to certain norms and looking askance on those who do not. On the whole, Perkta is a sinister figure who punishes the slovenly, the idle, the greedy, uh, the inquisitive. Refractory children and even adults are in danger of having their stomachs ripped open by her. She will then remove the contents, even the intestines, and replace them with refuse, or in some versions with straw and pebbles, which I guess you could see as a kind of refuse. Uh, just occasionally, we glimpse a different side of Perkta's nature. Among the Slovenes, she was a tall, powerfully built woman living in the groves and mountain chasms, but also in the depths of lakes in the summer. Okay, now this is interesting because Perkta is associated with the mountains, and we'll see the Grilla will also be associated with the mountains. Um, but then also the depths. So there's some underworld associations there, but we'll get to that. In the winter, she withdrew to the inside of the mountains, where, like Frau Halle, she made the snow. In the winter months, she also, also occupied herself with spinning, and when the shepherds brought flax to her in the summer, she blessed their flocks. The shepherds claimed to see her walking above the steepest slopes at twilight, a golden spindle in her hand. Okay, so, um, <clears throat> and, you know, and he goes on to talk about how Jacob Grimm uh, tried to connect her with some older earth mothers, um, and he's not, you know, again, he, you know, um, you know particularly, uh, you know, and trying to look at the etymology of the name, and what it might mean, because there's some, you know, difficulty about that. Uh, Perkta, her name actually is, she, Perkta's day is specifically is the day of Epiphany, January 6th, okay? And um, <clears throat> there's this idea, um, and uh, Smith here also associates her with um, the, um, he talks about another article by Ellis, uh, Hilda Elvis, Ellis Davidson, uh, Lost Beliefs of Northern Europe, Davidson makes interesting comparisons, hinting at possible parallels between Perkta's wagon or plow and English Plow Monday ceremonies, or between Perkta's association with spinning and St. Brigia's affinity with the same activity. 
Some of the customs associated with Perkta, processions and visitations, for instance, are also seen as similar, if not related to activities of the saints' representatives, the Biddies, fantastically arrayed youths who might visit Irish houses and terrify children on the eve of St. Brigid's Day, uh, 1st of February. Okay, and I mention this one specifically because this is <clears throat> this idea of these um, fantastically arrayed youths who cause mischief is also associated with Grilla, as we will see in a moment. Um, I'm just um, <clears throat> pulling up all of my notes here on, on this because I want to make sure I have talk about everything so that we, we have these interpretations. Um, <clears throat> now, um, let's see. Uh, yeah, okay, this is just another description. Perkta may have two forms. She may appear as beautiful and white as snow, like her name, or as elderly and haggard. In many old descriptions, Perkta had one large foot, sometimes called a goose foot or a swan foot. Grimm thought the strange foot symbolized her being a higher being who could shapeshift to animal form. He noticed that Bertha, <coughs> excuse me, with the strange foot exists in many languages. Um, <clears throat> uh, and he gives, gives some examples of that, that phrase, that, that epithet, the idea of Bertha with the big foot. Um, it is apparently a swan maiden's foot, which is a mark of her higher nature she cannot lay aside. At the same time, the spinning woman's splay foot that worked the treadle. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and here they say, Perkta was the upholder of cultural taboos, such as the prohibition against spinning on holidays. Now, again, spinning and wool are going to prove to be important in these stories. <clears throat> Excuse me, I've got a very dry throat today. In the folklore of Bavaria and Austria, Perkta was said to roam the countryside in midwinter and to enter homes during the 12 days between Christmas and Epiphany, especially on Twelfth Night. She would know where the children and young servants of the household had behaved well and worked hard all year. If they had, they might find a small silver coin the next day in a shoe or pail. If they had not, she would slit their bellies open, remove their stomach and guts, and stuff the hole with straw and pebbles. She was particularly concerned to see that the girls had spun the whole of their allotted portion of flax or wool during the year. She would also slit people's bellies open and stuff them with straw if they ate something on the night of her feast day other than the traditional meal of fish and gruel. Um, <clears throat> and... Uh, and he may mention, this is in the Wikipedia article, canonical and church documents characterize Perkta as synonymous with other leading female spirits, um, Holda, Diana, uh, Herodias, uh, Rochella, and Abundia. <clears throat> Diana, of course, being another, also like Artemis, whom we've also spoken about. And Artemis's role in um, dealing with young girls who, who misbehave, okay, or, or who are, you know, <clears throat> don't um, give up their virginity in the proper way, for instance. So, <clears throat> rather interesting. Um, okay, so this, this is Perkta, okay? Um, in contemporary culture, it says, Perkta is portrayed as rewarder of the generous, punisher of the bad, particularly lying children. Now, we can kind of recognize this Christmas tradition in the stories of St. Nick or Santa Claus and perhaps Krampus. Um, or as, uh, if you remember the David Sedaris, uh, there's a very funny David Sedaris piece called Six to Eight Black Men, and it's a base, it was about a time he went to, uh, to Holland and they were talking about Christmas traditions and says that St. Nicholas appears with, you know, to how it comes to houses with six to eight black men, um, <clears throat> which he, um, you know, leaves presents for good children. And otherwise, you know, these men take the bad children in their sack and carry them away and beat them. So this is also very similar to the legend of Krampus, who <clears throat> also has this. And you see many of these, um, probably at this time of year, you'll see a lot of articles about the St. Nicholas processions where he's proceeding with angels, and then there's these very 
scary demonic figures, uh, Krampus figures, uh, following him in the back. So while that is that is sort of the mas- a masculine version of, of, of Saint Nick is the one who um, leaves, leaves presents, um, or Santa Claus, as uh, we have in the United States, uh, Father Christmas, I suppose, in, in England and some other parts. Um, it's, it's kind of interesting, and there, there was actually a whole article that I had seen about why monsters are still in Europe but not in America. Um, and the theory was that the, uh, the poem, The Night Before Christmas, um, <clears throat> that was written, uh, you know, of, about, uh, about saying, you know, Twas the Night Before Christmas and all through the house, not a creature stirring, not even a mouse, etc., etc. And, gosh, what's the name of the author? Um, okay, while we're sitting here, I have to, I have to get, I know the name, it's like on the tip of my tongue. Um, let me just see, uh, who wrote the original poem here. Um, Visit from St. Nicholas, it was called. Um, uh, by Clement Clark Moore. Yeah, that, I knew it was, you know, it was just one of those names I was like, something Clement? Uh, I couldn't remember what it was. Anyway, that's the name, Clement uh, Clark Moore. So, um, and some people blame that particular interpretation of uh, the sort of Christmas, uh, you know, the the judgment, the good and the bad, you know, uh, you know, you're going to get presents if you're good, coal in your stocking if you're bad. That's kind of the way it it, it, uh, morphed into American culture. Um, not, none of this, you're going to be dragged off and beaten or eaten by, you know, some, some figure. But, uh, but this, this idea still occurs in Europe and people, you know, again, because we, we have a very different understanding of, of the meaning of that kind of a thing today. There's a lot of attempts to sort of, uh, sanitize that kind of stuff. Um, okay. So we've talked about Frau Perkta. We've kind of, that's kind of the, the, her basic story. So let me talk a little bit about Grilla. Okay. Um, <clears throat> now, Grilla is uh, is interesting. She originally was not associated with Christmas. She is an ogress, so it means she's a giant, scary-looking woman who uh, lives in the mountains. Okay, and some say she dwells in a cave. And when I think about that, and about Perkta as dwelling either in the mountains or underneath a lake, I think all of those are very. I think all of those those uh, geographical locations. Um, these, these are traditional entrances to the underworld, so keep that in mind, okay? Um, so, <clears throat> Grilla is a giantess with an appetite for the flesh of mischievous children who she cooks in a large pot. Um, her husband, Lepaluti, is lazy and mostly stays at home in their cave. And <clears throat> Grilla, so in original, in, in 13th century, Grilla is mentioned in the Prosetta, okay, which is a, um, uh, let me, uh, yeah, which is a which is a Norse compilation of Norse mythology from that time, but she's not specifically um, connected to Christmas. Um, let me see if I actually have the um, what you call it uh, the 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 quotes from um, from the Prosetta. I have it somewhere here. Let me just uh, look at all my notes. Um, got this one. Ah, here we go. That's the one I'm looking for. Yeah, let me let me read a little bit from this. This is actually a Smithsonian article on on Grilla, which was titled "Why Iceland's Christmas Witch is Cooler and Scarier Than Krampus." Okay, um, <clears throat> so uh, this is um, while Krampus may be king of holiday scares, his fans may overlook an equally nasty, much more formidable queen, a Christmas monster who lives further north in the frigid climes of Iceland, who goes by the name Grilla, the Christmas witch. This tough ogress lives in a cave in Iceland's hinterlands, the matriarch of a family of strange creatures, launching attacks on nearby townships, snatching up misbehaving children, and turning them into a delicious stew. 
You don't mess with Grilla, says Terry Gunnell, head of the folkloristics department at the University of Iceland. She rules the roost up in the mountains. Tales of the Ogres begin as oral accounts with the earliest written references found in the 13th century in historic sagas and poems throughout the region. And here we go. This is the one I'm thinking of. One reads, here comes Grilla down in the field with 15 tails on her, while another describes down comes Grilla from the outer fields with 40 tails, a bag on her back, a sword knife in her hand, coming to carve out the stomachs of children who cry for meat during Lent. Okay. And um, they're talking about the Icelandic Yule. Um, according to Gunnell, the earliest celebrations of the season were viewed as a time not only to bring together relatives living in deceased, but also elves, trolls, and other magical and spooky creatures believed to inhabit the landscape. Sometimes these figures would visit in the flesh as masked figures going to farms and houses during the season. And again, you, you don't just see this in Iceland, you see this in other cultures as well. <clears throat> uh, Grilla, whose name translates loosely to growler, okay, um, would be among these, showing up with a horn tail and a bag in which she would toss naughty children. Um, she was certainly around in about 1300, not directly associated with Christmas, but associated with the threat that lives in the mountains. You never knew exactly where she was, said Gonell. Long poems were written about her and a husband, but he didn't last long, as Gonell explains. She ate one of her husbands when she got bored with him. Um, <clears throat> other bits of folklore describe a second troll-like husband and a giant man-eating yule cat, known to target anybody who doesn't have on new clothes. Um, making a new pair of socks or long underwear as an imperative for any Icelandic holiday shopper. Filling out what Gunnell calls this highly dysfunctional family are Grilla's mob of large adult sons, the 13 Yule Lads. Okay. Now, again, some versions there's only nine. But um, again, the, the, and these are the names I'm not going to try to describe to you, but you can easily look them up. If you look up the Yule Lads, you can easily see what the, the names are and what they do. But they visit on specific days throughout the 12 days of Christmas and throughout December. Uh, unleashing their individual types of pestering, okay? <clears throat> now, Grilla does not get connected to Christmas until the early 19th century, when poems began to associate her with the holiday. It was about this time when the Yule Lads and the Yule Cat, which had been standalone Christmas characters with no connection to the Christmas Witch, then became part of her big creepy family. Prior to that, Gunnell would say that she is really a personification of the winter and the darkness and the snow getting closer and taking over the land again. Not only does she represent the threat of winter, she was seen as actually controlling the landscape. Now that also is is something to to think about. Um, <clears throat> now, just going through this um, this article, I just want to read a few more parts of it because I think they're they're interesting and again critical to the points that I want to make about both of these characters. Uh, in the twentieth century. As American Christmas and its depiction of Santa Claus proliferated throughout Europe and beyond, attempts were made to santify the Yule Lads. Their bellies widened, their troll-like whiskers grew a bit bushier, and they acquired red and white fur costumes. They, like Santa, began leaving gifts rather than taking sausages, snacks, and so on. Um, <clears throat> the Dutch tradition of children leaving out their shoes to find chocolates and treats the next morning also influenced this shift. Some critics tried to snuff out Grilla altogether, attempting to sideline the scary character with more family-friendly fare. One popular Christmas song describes her death. Okay. Um, and of course, in more recent years, Iceland as a whole, led by the National Museum of Iceland, have worked to return the Yule Lads to their pre-Santa roots. Um, <clears throat> and um, let's see. Um, yeah, an interesting... Okay, um... Pilkington, who actually does a children's book on the Yule Lads, um, he talks about, he says, uh, Grilla is a better proven a tough figure to dislodge with her likeness found in the capital city of Reykjavik and beyond, sometimes in the flesh. 
Children are truly terrified of Grilla in Iceland, says Pilkington. I visited children's play schools to demonstrate drawing skills, and if I draw Grilla, then two or three terrified children have to leave the room because it is too strong for them. Uh, so that that is that's also very, very... I, I find that fascinating myself. Okay, so we're talking about these two figures. Um, now, some of the other things that are associated with them... Um, let me just go back to uh, some other notes that I have. Um... Now, uh, <clears throat> so she, she sort of, um, okay, so the Yule Cat. Let me just talk about the Yule Cat for a minute and its connection to Grilla. Um, so he's, he's Grilla's house pet. And it says the threat of being, it, it, but again, these, again, remember that the, the Grilla was originally written about in the 13th century. It's the 19th century um, when, um, you know, when, you know when, when folklore was being rewritten at that time, you know, it, in, these countries at that time that she becomes associated with Christmas and, and connected to this Yule cat and to these Yule lads. Okay. Um, though referred to as an ancient tradition, written accounts of the Yule cat have only been located as recently as the 19th century. The threat of being eaten by the Yule cat was used as farmers as an incentive for their workers to finish processing the autumn wool before Christmas. Now I mention this because one of the things that we look at with uh, Perkta um, as well, um, let's see. Okay, I'm going to read this. This is from the Wikipedia article. Initially, Perkta was the upholder of cultural taboo, such as the prohibition against spinning on the holidays. In folklore of Bavaria and Austria, Perkta was said to roam the countryside at midwinter, enter homes during the 12 days. Okay, I think I actually kind of read this, so I don't want to reread it. Um, but remember I had said, particularly concerned to see that girls had spun the whole of their portion of flax or wool. So we see the same thing. This time it's the threat of the Yule cat, who is the cat of Grilla. And others, it's Perkta herself is going to come and rip your guts out if you don't do that. Uh, but if Grilla get, you know, the Yule cat will rip you to shreds, okay, if you, um, if they discover that. Or, um, you know, and, and again, there seems to be an, a, an association here with wool and spinning in particular, okay? So that, those, those I think are the elements that we want to look at um, going forward. Okay, so what we have here basically are monstrous folkloric figures, female figures particularly, that have to do with judgment, okay? Um, if we think back to the Baba Yaga episode, there are some similarities there also with, with Baba Yaga, who is a force of nature. She is out in the woods, and she also kind of exacts a kind of a judgment on people as well, you know, with those who um, are, are not good or wicked or who are lazy, uh, suffering certain consequences that um, those who are good, um, you know, will receive a reward. Um, you, and we, you can go back and listen to that podcast that I did with uh, Joanna Madlock uh, a couple months ago. Um, that that one should be among the Chthonia archives. Um, that's that's a good one. So if you haven't uh, haven't heard that one, I, I encourage you to listen to it. Um, okay, so they're both associated with the twelve days of Christmas in some fashion. Um, and there's this taboo about spinning in particular and about, you know, processing wool or processing flax, okay? And, you know, so, you know, so the question is, okay, why that in particular? Why, I mean, there seems to be a broader sense of judgment, like have you been good during the year? And, of course, the, the comment about have you eaten meat during Lent, you know what I mean? Um, you know, it, it, you know that, that kind of a thing. Um, but I, but it also, okay, in the most, most basic sense, it would make, you know, when you, when you think about the time of year that we're talking about, it's winter time, okay? 
um, even though this is the, you know, uh, Yule represents the return of the light, it's still quite a while. It's not till roughly till Breeges Day, which is actually considered to be kind of midwinter, at least in um, a lot of European folklore. That's why Samhain or Halloween is sometimes considered to be the beginning of winter. This, in a way, would almost be the midwinter and Breeges Day or uh, Imbolc would be considered to be the beginning of spring in, 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 in another way of looking at it, okay, if we don't just look at it by the solstices and the equinoxes. Um, we, we don't tend to look at it that way, but just, you know, just to kind of get a, a framework there. Um, so, but nonetheless, winter is just known to be a very dark period. We're waiting for the light to increase at springtime. And so, and of course, in almost all these cultures, the winter hag is the uh, rule is the ruler, and, and it always associated with a very old woman. Okay, and here's your associations, probably your Earth Mother, your death associations. Okay, the fact that these hags live in caves, the fact that they live under the water, these are all like I said earlier, these are all traditional entrances to the underworld. If you um, Look, for example, at all the ancient Greek uh, entrances, supposedly to Hades. Um, all of them are either underneath bodies of water or they are in caves. Okay, so there's definitely this sense of um, <clears throat> these is, these is kind of being representing these kind of dark and um, forbidden, unfamiliar places that could lead to um, the underworld. And again, by this point, you have an association with the underworld and what's under the earth as being something very negative. So they, they end up having this kind of negative association that I'm not entirely sure they're supposed to have. There's certainly a very didactic element to this, the idea of you'd better behave or so, you know, and a lot of us, I think, think tend to look at these stories as, um, you know, the naughty and nice business. You know, you, you have to be, you better be good and you better be nice. Um, but I think even more so, there's a sense of trying to keep people from stepping outside the bounds of society or the bounds of the community. Um, that like it's a taboo to violate these things. And at this particular time, there's the idea that winter has come, so everything already has to be prepared. The flax already has to be spun. Everybody has to have their clothes. Because if you don't have your clothes, you're going to freeze, you're going to be naked and freeze to death, right? Um, just as all the harvest has to be done. So if, if somebody has not done their part during the year, that could, that could destroy, that could affect the whole community. So these, these hags kind of maybe sort of are a representation of that threat, that threat, you know, when you um, when you have not appropriately um, dealt with the natural flow of things, you know, whether it be, you know, through and they seem to be associated particularly with clothing oneself um, in some way. Okay, so um, another association that they have is with the feast of the Epiphany. Now, um, I think it's worth noting. Now, as I, I already mentioned earlier, what Epiphany is. Okay, it's the the arrival of the Magi. But the, the Epiphany also in ancient Greece was the Feast of the Kore, which is another, you know, one of the other epithets used for um, the goddess, or one of the names, really, for the goddess Persephone, whom we've also done an episode on. And as we know, Persephone spends part of her year in the bright upper world and part of her, um, part of her time as the goddess, uh, the queen of the underworld, as the wife of Hades. So, um, so there's kind of a dual-aspected Persephone here. And so again, we have this, um, and probably at this particular time of year, Persephone is associated more with, with the darkness. So that feast day is associated on January the 6th, um, just like Epiphany. So um, again, interesting because you have to, because you, of course, the Feast of the Kore would have come before the Epiphany. But none, and, but, and, and that also is the day associated with Frau Perkta 
so she is <clears throat> um so there's this idea of these these kind of dark female figures associated with the with the moment of manifestation or clarity okay um and and that's that's rather interesting i'm not going to pretend that i know exactly what how to piece those two things together uh, there's probably a lot of other associations that you could connect if you if you looked at some other um, folkloric sources, but um, but to me certainly that association with these um, you know these kind of reckoning with these you know the the dark the dark earth mothers if you will um, is uh, you know and and the fact that this is so associated with this particular time of year and has become intertwined with uh, Christian legends and, and beliefs about this particular period of time, okay, um, is, worth, is worth noting. Um, okay, so let's look at some other associations here. Uh, there's cannibalistic and monstrous ones. Now, in Grilla's case, she likes to collect children and eat them, okay? Um, in, in, in the stories of Krampus and, and some of the others, they, they, they also grab bad children and put them in a sack, but they don't eat them. They, they just beat them and, and scare the hell out of them, basically. Um, but they both have to do with slitting the belly open, which is interesting. Uh, and in, in, like I said, in the case one, she fills it with straw instead and, and garbage. And, you know, so, so again, so, what is, so this cannibalizing, again, we're back to the theme and the archetype of the devouring mother. You know, and what does she take? She's taking your innards. She's taking the innermost part of you, the part of you uh, that allows you to eat, the part that allows you to, um, you know, uh, to process your food. Um, you know, she, she removes that and, you know, and stuffs you with straw instead. And or in, in the case of Grilla, will actually just, you know, turn you into a stew and eat you. So. Again, so, you know, so you have this, this idea, you know, that obviously there's, again, there's the didactic threat of, you know, you had better follow the standards or this is what's going to happen to you. Um, and um, I'm just looking at my notes here. Yeah, I also have the sheep and the wool connection. It's also worth thinking about the fact that Breeges Day, which is February 1st or 2nd, also known as Imbolc, has to do with the birthing of the lambs. So sheep tend to be kind of an integral part of this as well. Um, at, at Yule time, it seems that, um, you know, all the wool and, 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 and the flax also from the, from the fields all, all needs to be processed at that time. So, uh, so there's, there's, there's kind of the, the, the need to have everything ready for, for the warmth and this kind of threat of, um, be, being devoured by natural forces, really being either being devoured or being gutted by them in some way. Okay, so that's, um, you know, so that's, uh, was certainly a very real kind of a threat. We could, we can probably, um, we don't think as hard about those kinds of things because today, I mean, at least in, in most modern countries, I mean, I'm, I'm, there's obviously exceptions around the world that are, that are different, but we're not so reliant on all of that. So it, it, you know, on all those, those cycles of nature and so forth. In fact, we're probably very much out of touch with nature. And um, it's that loss of connection. But at least part of that loss of connection, it seems to be our fear of this particular side of it. Um, but you don't escape it. Um, when we have, you know, vicious tornadoes and hurricanes and, and natural disasters, I mean, if they, that, that's there. I mean, really, there's, there's the stark in your face that, um, you know, you, you don't really have as much control over nature as you think. Um, 
And that kind of gets me to the point of what I call sanitization. Um, there's, they talk about, as I read, the, the Yule lads, for instance, become uh, mischief makers who then do good and now leave presents instead of ripping your guts out or, or taking your, so- you know, taking something or whatever. Um, the version of the Grilla story where eventually she's the bad lady who's killed. Now there's, there's, there's taking the, and, and, and changing it up because now this is something, um, it, it, I, I personally, okay, I, I go back to the idea of the whole fear of death. Does death come close to you or do you keep death away from you? Now you might just say, well, obviously nobody's looking to die. So no, nobody keeps death close, but I mean that in a much bigger way, um, Death is one of those things that, um, and loss, and, and, and the kinds of things that winter tends to represent. Uh, it, does the community embrace it? Um, when somebody dies, is it everybody's there uh, and in the room? Is that, you know, if I think of um, medieval times when, uh, you, know, you know, the market stalls and things would be in the churchyard where the cemetery was, as opposed to, say, what the Romans would do. It's like everybody, you know, all the dead was taken and buried in a pit outside of town, and we, we don't want to be close to it or know anything about it. Um, and, and today, even though we have cemeteries, you know, there tends to be a sense of staying away from the dead, you know, keeping, keeping death at bay. You know, when people get sick, we put them in nursing homes, and, and, and we don't, you know, with, the, with these, they're kind of very false, um, you know, colors and stuff to try to make things. There's, there's just a real sense of, we want sickness and death kept away from us. And that's not, it's not so much that, hey, we want to be sick and we want to die. It's more a case of whether or not you accept that this is part of life or not. Okay. And these particular figures to me are, are representing sort of, you know, some of these gruesome realities of the kind of loss you can suffer. Um, but, you know, and, and part of the danger of being so connected to nature and to the spirits of nature. Um, I, I feel like all of modern religion and so forth is about, staying away from that, like, you know, sanitizing it, you know, being safe from it, being in your little fence, um, you know, away from all of that. But that doesn't really serve you as a human being, because, and it doesn't necessarily make you immune. Um, I think of some of these, uh, like, these zombie movies where everybody's hiding behind a wall, and then eventually the zombies figure out how to scale the wall. You're not going to, you can't stay away from the, the scary influences forever. So the question is, how do you incorporate them in your life? How do you deal with them? How do you negotiate them? Okay. So, um, and so, yeah, so we, we tend to sanitize things because it becomes more like, let's not scare the little children, but it's also like, well, yeah, but you don't necessarily need to outright scare kids, but you know, you're not, you're not giving someone a complete, you know, picture of life if they don't understand that, you know, you don't give them kind of an arrogance and entitlement about how things are and how life is because, you know, we are still ultimately at the mercy of nature and ultimately, um, you know, this, this good versus evil nonsense, we're going to, we're going to vanquish the bad, the big bad witch. You're, you're not going to, that's, you know, this is all, this is all part of, of who we are and where we are. So don't, assume that that you can you know part of what and again part of what my whole thing in telling and retelling these stories is you you can't like stop stop acting like this is a bad thing that you have to get rid of it's something it's not always pleasant but it does represent certain things that that need to be negotiated in your life in some way and it's better to face them than to um try to pretend that you're going you know somebody's going to kill off the big bag monster or you know that they're going to go away and they're they're not they're they're not they're they're a danger that is always there, and and how will you respond to that danger? How do you you know how do you respond to that in terms of your own survival? Okay, so 
I think that's about all I'm going to say. Uh, I, I do know just from listening to other podcasts that sometimes I tend to uh, get a little rambly towards the end. So I think I will avoid that. Um, I have been working, I'm going to be collaborating to try to do some overhaul on um, the Chthonia website, which right now is, you know, in, I'm, I, I was looking at it with, uh, with a consultant the other day. It, it does need a fair amount of work. Um, so I, you know, I'm, I'm going to, I want to, I'm going to see what I can get done myself, but I'm, I'm probably going to be looking into overhauling, but those kind of things you don't want to do too quickly. You kind of want to, or, you know, organize it first. So it may take me a couple months, but Chthonia.net is still there. At least all the information about everything is there. Podcasts are there and they're also on metapsychosis.com slash series slash Chthonia. If you just want to listen to them. Well, in either place, actually, you can just listen to them on a computer. If you want to download the podcast, iTunes, Spotify, uh, Google Play, you can, whatever your favorite podcast app is, you can download this and subscribe. And um, and also I have my uh, Patreon page, patreon.com slash Chthonia. Um, thank you, as always, very much to the patrons I, I currently have. And uh, we would I would love to have more of you you know, join in and help because there are more benefits and perks that will come to people who uh, join the Patreon page. Um, I have some writing that I'm finishing up so people have early access to some of that material. I sometimes have giveaways. Um, I just had one recently of my uh, my book, uh, Death and the Maiden. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of other, there's going to be a lot of other cool stuff coming up in the next year because um, a lot of my focus is now being turned towards working on this. Part of the reason I don't end up spending more time on this, you know, I, I get the podcast out every couple of weeks, but I also have like another full time job and another teaching job and all this other stuff. So I like, you know, it, I really need to kind of reorganize myself and make some more time for this next year. And that's actually something already in progress. So um, so I would, you know, I would look, look forward. I'm hoping, hoping some of you can, can help with additional support. Um, and if not just, you know, listen and enjoy the podcast, leave comments for me. Um, I would be very happy. Uh, if you've read my book, please review it on Amazon. Cause you know, it, it's, I, I understand that a lot of these things take time and, and I get why people don't frequently want to do it, but it, but it really does help if you do that. Um, it helps boost a lot of things. Um, if you, if you do. So, uh, with that, I will say um, happy winter holidays, whatever you celebrate, and we will uh, I will I will speak to you in the next episode.